Episode 179, Getting to the Center of Patient Centricity. Today, I speak with Anne Beal, MD, MPH, from Sanofi. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Patient centricity is one of those buzzwords everybody uses and no one quite knows what it means, especially in the pharmaceutical industry. Talk to five people and you'll get, I don't know, seven to nine answers. Ann Beale, MD, MPH, is the Senior Vice President and Global Head of Patient Solutions over at Sanofi. Dr. Beale, when she came to Sanofi four years ago, set out to not only define patient centricity, but also to strive to achieve it at a pharmaceutical company and developed a strategic framework consisting of three pillars. Today, we talk about these three pillars. We talk about collecting the real world data and evidence to support them. And we talk about the difficulties and rewards of operationalizing patient centricity in this real world that we all live in. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Ann Beale, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. Let's jump right in here. You are the Senior Vice President and Global Head of Patient Solutions over at Sanofi. Relative to the pharmaceutical industry, what traditionally has patient centricity meant? So that's actually an excellent question because, frankly, it's one that the industry in many ways is still trying to figure out. So I I have the privilege of being part of something that's called the Patient Officers Network, which is being spearheaded by one of my colleagues with a similar title over at uh, another pharmaceutical. And essentially what we do is we have an opportunity to come together for us to talk about exactly what is patient centricity within the industry. And what I've found is that it really does vary across many institutions. And so some are very much focused on patient engagement and input into research. Others are very much focused on making sure that there is a patient view in terms of what the employees are thinking about. Others are very much focused on policy issues and working with patient advocacy groups in some areas. Others are thinking about this within the context of what does it mean for our patient-facing programs and solutions. And so I find that it really means so many different things to so many different people and to in so many different settings that there's really no one way that it is uniformly defined. Do you feel that helps frame the larger context? In other words, if it actually is as big as all of these things, then having various individuals very focused and working on each of these different aspects and then come together and collate later? Or does it actually make it very confusing because you say one word and everyone walks away thinking the glossary definition is something totally different, i.e. confusion? I think that's an important point because what I'm finding is that it means so many different things to so many different people. You often have to level set. So when I've talked about this issue in public settings, I said, you know, there's a difference between patient centricity versus patient engagement versus patient empowerment. And so it really, I think, is worth level setting to say exactly what it is that you mean and 
in what context. So when I joined the company, that was exactly the exercise that I did to really say, okay, as we're thinking about patient centricity within the context of Sanofi, I wanted to make sure that I had input from many of the leaders in order to really have clarity as to what were their expectations and what were the needs and challenges that they were trying to address by having had this position created. Well, I'm going to take your advice, Anne. So if I was going to ask you (laughs) what your definition or Sanofi's definition of patient centricity is, how would you go about defining it? Sure. I think, first of all, we have to challenge ourselves to move beyond the platitudes of putting the patient at the center of everything that we do. Um, I think a lot of people in, in health and healthcare would argue that that's what they do anyway, although I think p- patients might agree uh, or disagree, I would say. And so for me, the real linchpin is around what is it that we're doing to improve patient outcomes. And the patient outcomes can be defined in any number of ways, but the outcomes that I really try to ground us in are the outcomes that are aligned with the triple aim. So as we talk about the the clinical quality outcomes, which I think many people, especially clinicians, are familiar with, but then there's also the function of the, the patient experience, and then there's also the finances associated with it, especially from a patient perspective. And so when we think about those three pillars and then say, okay, so what are we doing that is aligning our tools, our services, our products, everything that is patient-facing to make sure that we're improving patient outcomes. Those outcomes are aligned around clinical quality, the patient experience, and then affordability. Which is not easy. So I know one of the (laughs) things that you have been working on is a strategic framework. And as you mentioned, there's three pillars in that framework. What are the three pillars? And then let's drill into each one. It's worth saying that first, when I joined the company, as I mentioned, I wanted to make sure that I had input from a variety of different people. So whether it was like legal or finance or R&D or commercial colleagues or, or development colleagues, regulatory, everybody to really get a sense from them what it was that they thought about in terms of patient centricity. And so as we worked to then develop the three pillars, I wanted to make sure that we had something which really could be applied across all of those different types of functional areas. With that as the backdrop, talking to the leaders and then talking to their N minus ones and N minus twos, because that's actually where the work actually gets done, we actually came up with three pillars. So one was really around efforts to work on patient input to develop insights that are moving us well beyond what we expect from market research, but to really think about when you work with and engage with patients as partners, what are the different opportunities that you have to really develop something that is uniquely responsive to their needs because it was developed in response to their expressions of what it is that they need want. So I call that first pillar um, really around our patient engagement work that we do to bring in those insights. The second pillar is really about making this business as usual. And so there is a an effort that needs to uh, occur in terms of uh, diffusion of innovation and in terms of bringing um, new work into the organization to actively try to disseminate these new practices. And so we have a pillar that's called patient business strategy, which is really on bringing this into the business as uh, a standaway of practice. And 
And then the third pillar is patient outcomes and solutions. And that really gets to that linchpin issue that I talked about earlier in terms of making sure that what we do really has an impact on patient outcomes. And so it requires not only the development of uh, the appropriate tools and programs, but then also an ability to evaluate and assess those programs. So let's go back to the first one, because I got questions for all three. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about patient engagement, which was your your first pillar, how do you work with a patient? How do you collect inputs so that you can understand and be uniquely, as you said, responsive to their needs? I guess my my question is kind of maybe it hangs on the population health management versus precision medicine debate mm-hmm. that every patient is an individual. So if we're talking about one patient who might be super interested in a longer life and another one who's more interested in being mobile and having quality of life, you know, and every nuance in between, how does a, a large, very regulated company like a Sanofi it takes some agility to be able mm-hmm. to navigate all of the uniqueness that the market could bring to bear. Yeah. How do you do that? A lot of it really depends upon context. So the first thing is to recognize that never, ever, ever is a pharma uh, a business going to replace a physician. And so the first question that we have to ask ourselves as we're thinking about what we're trying to do in terms of improving patient outcomes, how can we facilitate what physicians have available to them to do just that? Because that really is ultimately uh, the desire that they have, as well as they're really the, the chief people who are responsible for that. And so as we think about then different types of insights, we want to really work on bringing those insights in actually at the population level, but then it really helps then physicians to think about things differently at the individual level. The other thing related to insights is that we're also working a lot with the use and application of behavioral science to really frame the insights that we have within the context of how it can be applied in practice. And so when we're thinking about things such as what are the challenges that patients face? What is it that they like? What is it that they don't like? What is the messaging that really resonates with them? You can bring this all together in order to really work with physicians to give them some cues and help as to how they can better engage and work with patients and be much more responsive to their needs. I can see that a company such as yours, which knows a lot about certain mm-hmm. therapeutic categories and also has the wherewithal to really invest deeply in something like behavioral science, that's not something that your average provider is going to necessarily I don't think there's a whole lot of classes in med school about nope. <laughs> motivational counseling or right. whatever. I did not. It. I did not have that when I was in med school. So, so it, it sounds like the objective there is to bring to bear all of the support that's possible in order to help a physician or other care provider customize on behalf of that provider's. Exactly. And frankly, where there's huge opportunity is in the work that we're doing around what's called adherence, because there's, you know, just a slew of data, slew of evidence, which shows that the more the patients adhere to the medications that have been prescribed by their physicians, then the better are their outcomes. They also avoid hospitalization. They avoid a lot of the long-term 
poor outcomes associated with many chronic conditions. And so it really is something that actually many physicians struggle with in terms of what are some of the best practices to try to improve adherence with their own patients? What are the tools that they need? What is the counseling that they need? What is the support that they need? And so if we work with physicians in that area, it actually is a win for them in that this is something that many physicians are challenged with uh, with their patients, particularly in a very busy clinical setting. And then obviously, if we have products that have been prescribed and patients are adherent to them, then it's uh, a clear win for the business. But it's also a clear win for patients when products are appropriately prescribed and they're effective. And if, you know, they really work, they're only going to work if the patient takes them. So the things that we can work in those areas to really try to drive that, I think really represent a a win-win-win for everybody. It's really nice when you can find the shared priority that Mm -hmm. if you can achieve it, everyone walks away better for it. Exactly. Let's talk about your second pillar, making patient centricity or being patient centric every day. And right. I know within the context of the healthcare industry, not just pharma, uh, Gary Frazier actually was on the podcast. He's a, a strategist for a large hospital chain. And his experience, even in a large hospital chain, was at the beginning of the year, everyone's very aspirational and has <laughs> these sort of visionary strategies. And then all of a sudden, the you know, reality. Yeah. Like the third quarter comes around and people realize they're not going to achieve their uh, incentive comp. So all of a sudden it's uh, what's the share of this quarter, you know, Mm -hmm, or today mm -hmm. even. How do you go about, I mean, that is a very entrenched culture, number one. Number two, Wall Street's not going away. Right. How do you thread that needle? It was uh, actually the opportunity that I had was to tap into my own background as a physician. So in the days of healthcare quality and quality improvement around, you know, even 20 years ago at this point, if you spoke to any doctor and you spoke to the doctors about the training that they needed to improve outcomes, every doctor absolutely insisted that they were the best doctor and that there was really nothing that they could learn from anybody who wanted to come in to try to tell them how to improve the quality of healthcare that they were delivering. And so there was a lot that needed to be done in terms of doctors are very busy, healthcare systems are quite complex, doctors are professionals who are very highly respected. And so much of that sounds quite similar in terms of the environment within which we're working in pharma. And so what I did was actually tap into some of the innovations that have been used and specifically the Rogers work on diffusion of innovation, which really talks about working with the innovators and the early adopters and using them as leaders and uh, agents of change within your organization. And human psychology is such that especially with professionals, they may not listen to an authority, but they might listen to a peer. And also there's a certain amount of professional pride. And so people are very interested in always being at the front of the pack in terms of the work that they're doing from a professional perspective. And so being able to show, well, here's work that's going on that one of your colleagues is doing, and here's the evidence that we have to show that it has an impact proved to be an excellent way to really push this into the business. So we really spent a lot of time working with, as I said on this curve, the innovators and the early adopters. And the real goal of it was to actually communicate their work to use professional competition, if you will, to uh, get others interested in doing something similar. 
many have been on the podcast also talking about another ingredient, which seems to always somehow or another surface in these kinds of conversations. And that is the support of leadership and making mm-hmm. sure that leadership is aligned. I mean, really aligned, like actually yep. aligned, <laughs> not just a nice talking point for the, you know, the big town hall. Right. Do you find that as well? Oh, that's that's an absolute. So I think without leadership, then it's really not going to go anywhere. And so it is critically important because this is an, a, a topic that can touch so many different areas and it requires different agents within the organization to work with each other who may not used to be working with each other. So being able to have that leadership, which really calls people to task and really sets a vision for what it is that we're trying to achieve is critically important. I know in the past, it has sort of been a mutually exclusive proposition. In other words, be patient-centric or make your quarterly numbers. Are you starting to see that that dynamic is shifting? You know, like obviously the industry is headed in a much more value-based direction, for example. Is it your view that the two sides of that continuum are starting to join? In order to make quarterly goals in the future, it's going to be a requirement to be patient-centric? Or or how are you seeing that evolution? Yeah, so I think that's still a, a common misperception, but let's be clear. Any industry that has a customer base is not going to do well if it doesn't know and meet the needs of its customer base. And so uh, it really is not an, an either or proposition. So, you know, it's the same kind of false dichotomy when we talk about, well, we want to engage patients in research. And so they say, well, you, you know, well, we don't want to slow down the study. Well, in fact, engaging patients with research may in fact speed up the study if the study is much more patient-friendly and it's easier to recruit. So I actually think that that's a, a false dichotomy. And as we have our early wins, we need to, in the evaluation, demonstrate that, in fact, these are false choices that uh, are being thrust upon us and that it is not an either-or, but in fact, you can have both. I am thrilled to hear that. One of the things that I have seen and heard is, you know, it's this whole idea that they say healthcare is the only industry where one person eats the dinner, another person orders from the menu, and a third Mm -hmm. person pays for it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, historically, and this is certainly starting to shift with the trend towards consumerism and or the cost shifting towards consumers, as others like to call it. Yeah. But, you know, historically in the past, you know, the patient might not have necessarily been considered the customer. If you've got an insurance company, for example, or a PBM that's footing such a large portion of the bill and the priority of a PBM might not necessarily be in alignment, I could see how that would be very difficult for a pharma company to navigate. Yeah. But the reality is, is that, you know, while, while pharma companies are very big, they are still able to flex. So if you think about the history of many pharma companies, actually a lot of them actually come from a history of the chemical industry. And so in the early days, when you think about many of the the meds that were created, it was a scientist to scientist type of dialogue that occurred. And pharma was very comfortable 
having that science to science discussion. But then as it became kinds of products that required prescription, then the scientists and the business people needed to learn how to engage and talk with physicians. And so we developed a very robust medical affairs or medical function capability that allows us to work with and engage with the physician community. And then if you move forward from there, then The next player that came in was really the payers. And so we developed a capability around our ability to work with functions such as market access to really think about the cost of these products, to talk about them, to develop the evidence that it really works. And so we have a whole market access capability within all of these companies. And so now as the patient is emerging as a key decision maker, then I think we're going to have to develop a similar capability around patients. So I think that there's a history, and it's a decade-long history, but I think there is a history that shows the pharmaceutical industry's ability to flex and be able to engage with the key customers that help drive decisions around use of our products. And clearly what we're talking about here, back to the pillars, a lot of it would seem to rely on data, Mm -hmm. especially real world data. You know, if you're trying to figure out what the patient is looking for, obviously that's a real world endeavor. Right. So in fact, our function right now is located within our medical evidence generation group, which includes the real world evidence work that is going on within the company. And it really does make a lot of sense because part of what we're asking from the perspective of all of the entities or stakeholders with whom we work is to know and understand that we have done the research to see and understand what works. And so there's clearly the research which needs to be done as you're bringing a product to market in terms of the clinical trials and and the efficacy, but then there's the real world impact. And we know that in the real world, that there is a difference in terms of how products function. When you think about the gap from, say, prescription through to outcomes on a population basis, there's a portion of patients who don't take the product. There's a portion of patients who who might fill the first prescription, but will not still be on it six months later. There's a portion who take it all the time, but they might take it inappropriately. There's a portion who take it and then stop. And so there's a lot of you know different patterns that we see. And that is a function of a variety of factors, whether they're patient factors, physician factors, health system factors, contextual factors. I mean, there's many more than I can think of off the top of my head. But the more we have the data to really understand that, then the more we could say, okay, here's how things should really work for patients and for which patients. And here's how we can tailor some of our messaging to really help to make sure that our products are, are best applied to the right patient population at the right time. And again, with a view always of trying to improve uh, patient outcomes, then it really helps us to align and helps us to align in terms of what the what the data and evidence generation agenda should be. Is there an experience that you had or a moment when you realized this to be true? I loved what you said just there about how there's a gap between prescription and outcomes. Was it something that happened that really crystallized that in your mind? Well, I mean, there's a good literature that shows that this is, in fact, the case that when you look at this is why we need real world effectiveness or comparative effectiveness trials, because you really need to then look at how things function 
in the less than ideal world? How do they function when you're running late for work? And how do they function when uh, you have your kids that you're trying to uh, get off to school? And how do they function when you might run out of money for your prescriptions? So there's a definite literature that shows that this is in fact the case. And so what we need to figure out is not only how does it apply within the context of our own individual products, but then what are the opportunities for interventions that we can try to implement in order to address that. And obviously, this is a regulated environment. Mm -hmm. How have you seen regulations either, you know, limit the opportunity to pull off some of the things that you're talking about? Or what's your strategy to sort of function within it is what it is sort of environment? Yeah, I think that, you know, the regulations are there to protect the patients. And so we need to be very mindful of that. I think that the biggest challenge that I've seen is when they're, they lose sight of the intent of the regulations, which is protecting the patients to take on a paternalistic view, which is not allowing for significant patient involvement or engagement. And I think that patients really are, are interested in being able to be involved and engaged. And so this was definitely my experience in my previous work at the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute where we definitely saw that there was a strong desire for patients uh, to be involved. So I think that there's the intent and then how they're interpreted, which can sometimes be problematic in that I think people will overinterpret the intent of many of, of these regulations. But it's something that, you know, we're definitely working on. And I think that uh, we're starting to really make headway. To that end, I think it, it is a bit of an inflection point in the industry in general and the, mm -hmm. you know, pharmaceutical manufacturers being a piece of that industry that always in the past, it, things were static enough that you could say, yeah, no, we're not going to do the innovative thing because we can just do what we did last year. It's very safe. The, the safe choice was always a viable option. The safe choice mm -hmm. being something that was previously done and nobody got in trouble. Right. <laughs> but now the industry is changing so fast that what was done in the past is might not be viable, actually, and it might not actually even be the safest thing to do, which puts everyone in the uneasy position of having to evaluate and set new precedents. I would agree with that. And I think, though, that, again, that goes back to why the diffusion of innovation model has worked really well for us, because once you have that precedence, which has been established by the innovator or the early adopter, then you're able to share that experience and say, you know, see, the, the world did not open up and swallow us whole when we tried to actually talk to a patient. And so there is a lot of experiential learning. And then when you also then add to that, then the turnover of staff and people, it is a constant process. So communication is a critical, critical part of what we do because it really requires that to help people, even who have a desire to get involved and work in a certain way, but it helps them to understand that it really is feasible. Indeed. And how do you see pharma collaborating with payers and providers? I think around the patient is always a win-win situation. I think that it's going to though, require um, a little bit of flexing in terms of if Payers are always interested in data which shows that we can negotiate for lower prices with products 
That's not a collaborative environment. If pharma is always interested in doing the type of collaboration to show our drug is better and so you should get rid of all the others, that's not a collaborative environment. But I think that in many ways, the neutral ground is the work around the patient. And ideally, that's where everyone should be focused. To be frank, that is not always the case. So as you said, there are a number of different players who think about customers in a very different way. So at one point in my career, I actually worked for a payer and I was very surprised when they kept talking about our customers, our customers, our customers. I was thinking the patients, but they think of their customers as being the employers who purchase the plans. And so that was an interesting sort of mind shift for me, because if you're thinking that's your key customer, then you make different choices and set different priorities. Therein lies some of the probably dysfunction in the industry, which is certainly coming to bear at this juncture as patients do start rising, as, as more and more costs start shifting mm-hmm. to patients. But this, this is often attributed to millennials and just their desire to basically to be smart purchasers and mm-hmm. not to not protest the status quo. Right. Right. Well, I I have a millennial in my household. And one of the things that she was asking me is, you know, do I think things are harder for her generation than they were for mine? And I said, it's it's not harder, but it's different. And I said, you know, my generation, a lot of the challenges and issues that we had were defined by the haves and the have nots. And I think now many of the challenges are defined by the knows and the don't knows. And I think given the information that is out there and the ease of access, but then your need to be able to filter it through and determine what works and also then to really be able to focus so that you're making the appropriate decisions, I think that that is the challenge for this next generation. I love how you put that, the no's and the don't no's. And and yeah, yeah, in many not just healthcare, actually. No, exactly. <laughs> is there Are there any programs that you're working on right now that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, so we're actually, so as I said, so we're working within the medical evidence generation group. And what we're trying to do is to try to think about new insights to bring to the work that we're doing and how to bring in patient insights. So one of the other initiatives that we had is we have a lot of assets in the diabetes area. We have a lot of assets in Pasteur, which is our vaccine division, but the two never really worked together. And so as a doctor, I know that every patient with diabetes is supposed to have a flu vaccine and that's a standard. But the question is, is then what is the value that we can add and bring as a pharmaceutical company to try to promote that? So we've actually been doing a lot of research to kind of remind people that, you know, patients with diabetes have higher risks of mortality when they have the flu, that Uh, They're much more susceptible to the flu itself and to experiencing pneumonia. They also have more challenges with management of their diabetes when they are sick. And so some of this is pretty basic epidemiologic type of research. But then also what we are doing is trying to show new ways to think about data. And so we've been working with some data companies that actually link not only the electronic health records so they can look at claims data, but they also have devices like, uh, you know, smart devices on patients that allow us to look at things such as mobility and sleep patterns and walking and a number of different factors 
to really give us a better understanding about their experience around this uh, condition. And we've also been doing some analyses, actually working with uh, the folks over at Google Cloud to understand a bit more about uh, the patient efforts related to understanding the flu when they have diabetes and what are the kinds of questions that they look for, what are the factors that promote uptake of flu vaccine, what is it that patients are worried about. And so we've actually been working on this and we're going to be uh, reporting these results at the next uh, ADA Congress. So I'm very much looking forward to sharing those with the public in the next few weeks. Uh, so you'll leave us with a tease. Is that, is yes, that, is that yes, how you're going to yes. play it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's an embargo, less less of a tease and more of an embargo, I would say. <laughs> Got it. So if people are interested in learning more about what Sanofi is up to relative to patient centricity, where would you direct them? They can just go to our webpage, sanofi.com. And if they just type in the word patient centricity, what we felt was important was to show that patient centricity is really part of what everyone is doing in the business. And so Looking up the terms patient engagement, patient centricity actually will lead you to see the work that's going on from R&D to our commercial colleagues. So it's actually very exciting. And the more that we add to that and the, the deeper the response comes when people look up patient centricity, then the more excited I am. Dr. Anne Beal, I thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.